Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the EVC podcast. I'm David and joined by Andreas as usual. Today, we have Doreen Huber with us. Doreen is a partner at EQT Ventures, a 1.1 billion euro early stage venture fund with offices all over Europe and the US, backing European and US startups. EQT Ventures are investing out of fund three with a total of 2.3 billion euros in AUM and an established portfolio of more than 100 companies. Notable investments include Handshake, Banking Circle, Einride, Instabi, and Verpark. At Equity Ventures, Doreen focuses on software in Europe and led the investment into Parloa this year, the AI for customer care automation. If you're listening in and you love our show, you know what to do. Drop us a review, follow the pod, and subscribe at eu.vc. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This, this is a union of values, of values. United and determined. We can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new new beginnings. Let's start acting, 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 acting. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Zero One Hundred Conferences, which organizes networking events connecting LPs and GPs in private equity and venture capital firms across Europe. Their upcoming event, the Zero One Hundred Conference DACH, will take place on February the 28th to the 29th, 2024, at the Hotel Savoy in Vienna. Attendees will include major LPs and GPs like Atomico, AXA Venture Partners, Early Bird, Earth Group, Dawn Capital, Unica, and many other LPs and GPs. Save the date, February the 28th to the 29th, 2024, at Hotel Savoyen. Join us in Vienna. In a world where podcasts outnumber humans, we try at EUVC to be mildly more interesting. Tune in at eu.vc to watch this episode instead of just listening. eu.vc, where the extraordinary is just another Monday. This show is not investment advice and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured. So I was just sitting here thinking, how, who have we had on from EQT lately? And I realized that we've had Ted and NASA on NASA on the um, on the ACT podcast, the um, at the cap table podcast by uh, by by our great co-hosts, Chloe, Savs and Sarah, um, Chloe and Savs from Isomer Capital and Savs from Antler. Uh, so I was just I was just thinking there. It's great to have our third guest from EQT. So I think this time we will not dive too much into EQT, but instead all the different facets of Doreen Hooper and of course the topics that we have at hand here, which is going to be super exciting because we're going to talk a bunch about sales and the importance of sales in the European ecosystem. But with that said, Doreen, let's start this thing also off as we always do and ask you to share your story with us. Hey, uh, super cool to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, hi to everybody out there listening. Um, yeah, what's my story? Happy to share it. Um, I think it's not the most typical uh, VC story probably because uh, it was not really planned for me to become a founder or a VC. Started all pretty organically. Actually wanted to become a writer when I was at school. So studied also a bit later art history and literature. But then when I was 19, right after school, I had to find myself a job uh, and landed accidentally at the Silicon Valley-based tech startup VeriSign, where I spent a couple of years and learned uh, how to do sales. And um, that was basically my starting point for my whole uh, founder and uh, VC journey. 
And then uh, after that, uh, you know, started an agency at first, then a SaaS company in the reviews and ratings sector, and then joined Delivery Hero as a COO right from the start. And um, yeah, became an angel investor a little bit later, around uh, 2011, and then uh, became a full-time investor in 2021. And uh, here I am focusing on supporting founders now from the other side of the table. Doreen, could I just ask you to share a bit um, about that journey of like first-time angel investor and then how learning as an angel investor and going from that, it's a 10-year journey, it's quite a long journey actually, to full-time investor. Yeah, I think that that was actually very important for me to have this experience as well, to go through almost like those 10 years you could consider it as a full fund life cycle, right? And of course, you know, um, core learnings probably include, you know, really do your assessment right. Don't only invest only because of the people or only because of the product. So I think probably my learnings are everything, every good thing has to come together to make it this magic uh, and then really make the company succeed. A few learnings probably along the journey, you see very fast as an angel as well, if a company is uh, on, on the path to be successful or is not making it. So I think probably one third of the portfolio, you I could see pretty fast, like 12, maybe probably 12, 24 months. And you could see, okay, th- those are probably not making it, even though I had all the big beliefs in them in the beginning. And then uh, you can see over, over uh, the period, really over the years, making the experience, what makes the difference? Why did the other founders make it and what a kind of packet pattern recognition could you have? And for me, um, I think one super important part was to understand that if I would invest with the belief, oh, this is this is really cool, this is a great product idea, and I could make that happen, or if I would apply, I don't know, my sales learnings or something like that, we can make that happen, but the founder would not see it like that, then it would not work out. It's not. It's just not an aligned goal. Uh, so I realized over the years, rather being on the asking questions side, t- getting out of my founder and operator shoes and really try to understand, is this also the vision of that founder? Um, and uh, do I buy into their vision or do I just put my vision on top of that? I think those kind of things I, I started learning and starting seeing when was it a good uh, thing to invest in this company and when not. When not. What's been the biggest shift for you, Doreen? when considering investing as an angel versus now investing out of EQT? The biggest shift for sure was moving away from only having a strong intuition and investing extremely early. As an angel, you come in way earlier than we do and having more data. So making more of a, having an educated uh, view on things, having a strategy, having a, a thesis on the space. That is all stuff I didn't have as an angel. As an angel, I invested all over the place. I did uh, volocopter, you know, flying drones. I did food delivery with Delivery Hero. I also did software as a service, like everything where I had an interest or I could like f- get a passion for the founder or the product, I would invest. At an investor like EQT Ventures, it's way more data-driven, more thesis-driven. Um, and we want to be more strict on we go and approach companies uh, if we like what they're doing and not necessarily being reactive and waiting for, for them to approach us. Could I ask you, and maybe you don't want to answer this one, <laughs> but, and I'm, I'm focusing here on the angel investor track record, not the full-time investor. Biggest kind of fuck up in terms of a bad investment that has really taught you a lot and no need to name names, but I'd love to hear the, the learnings. Well, I can, I can tell you my biggest fuck up because I did not do the investment and it still hurts. <laughs> uh, I could have invested in the angel round of DoorDash. 
I and I came like really really bad. Uh, I know bad story still well, hurts. Why, why, why didn't you? What 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 you, know, you not want to do it? Well, the stupid stupid reasons. Looking like now I reflect on it's like yeah. stupid the most stupid reasons. Uh, one reason was um, I came from the space obviously as I had a strong view at Delivery Hero. We had back in the days was not yet the time where you would do the logistics yourself. Right? It was still the marketplace where you connect restaurants and uh, consumers and the restaurants would do the delivery. And we had uh, we had a couple of tests. We could never make it profitable. So I came with this belief, cool team, I really like them, but uh, they will never make that profitable. And it was Just a different mindset yeah. back in the days, right? It was, I mean, it's still like, what is it, like 10, 15 years ago or something like that. And then the second was, I just had done a lot of angel investment that month. And I was like, Ach, yeah, no, but not another one. But this one, this one would have been the one. All the other ones, you know, compared to that one. Um, but well, it is what it is sometimes. Uh, but I think for stupid reasons, I didn't do it. Um, and I think the biggest learning for me um, about this, about the logistics part, and I came with my experience, was if you invest so early as an angel, it's more about what is the product offering to the customer and would the customer love it? Not so much yet thinking about the unit economics and would you become this, would you be able to make this profitable or not? Because this you can figure out later, but first you need a product market fit and the customers loved it because the delivery by the restaurant was just not working very well and you had to wait an hour for the food and stuff like that. So I, I misjudged there. You know, I'm not sure if I should ask or not, but I'm going to ask you to share a pivotal moment in your life and describe how it has shaped you as an investor. I guess DoorDash is one in the list. One, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, well, I mean, thankfully, it's not so much of my personality to uh, look too much back and like be frustrated about it. I tried to look uh, into the future and I had uh, amazing angel investments as well. So I, I'm a lucky angel investor. When I look back, it's for me usually not that I have this, oh, this one moment or that one moment. It's more like the holistic view on I made all these these experiences and they shaped me and made me what I am today. But probably two or three moments which come to mind is um, my first company, which was an agency, was a bootstrap company. So I had to be really careful with what I spent the money for. We had to turn every euro, be super cautious about money and, and making revenue from day one. And then when I joined, like a couple of years later, I joined Delivery Hero. And Delivery Hero was the absolute opposite, right? We had a lot of capital and um, we, we, we needed to deploy it. So to, in order to grow extremely fast, internationalize so fast as we did back in the days, uh, you have to deploy hundreds of million fast. And I think that was a massive shift in my mind and my, my view, which really needed me to do a one one eighty, so that those two were probably pivotal moments, and I would not miss would not want to miss out on the bootstrapping part because sometimes I miss this in founders when they are, you know, it's great if they are ambitious and so on, but sometimes I feel that they are not go uh, working very uh, nicely with other people's money. So I think having bringing this to the table is also important trait. <laughs> And then um, the, the third is probably uh, one thing I still think about. When I joined VeriSign, that tech, U.S. tech company, when I was 19 years old, they just uh, had launched their, or I was part of the team launching their first European presence in, in Berlin and Germany. And we all got a T-shirt. That company had gone public in 1998, so uh, I think three, four years earlier. They had, uh, uh, you know, suffered from the market uh, correction in 2000 and stuff like that. But uh, we get we got this T-shirt 
And that says, uh, Verisign is launching Germany. Failure is no option. And that is something which is still, I don't know, like a mantra. It sticks. It doesn't mean that you, you cannot make any mistakes. But for me, it's a performance mindset. This, the mindset I learned from them back in the days was really go, go full speed, go fast, but do it right and do not fuck it up. And we're going to get much, much more into that mindset just in a little bit. But first, let's go to the take a stand section. Take a stand. And for our take a stand section, we're going to have you pick two, actually, because you're going to first you're, how should I put it? You've juxtaposed two, one being by Daniel Cabricnor from Speed Invest. He said, If you need luck to become successful, then you might rather restart. Luck is overrated. But then we have Stefan Helgeson from Creandum who says something rather different, which is, And I actually don't think there's any such thing as luck. And I think the prepared mind and the hardworking individual will make sure that luck or chance favors you rather than someone else. So, Doreen, tell us, what's your take on this? <laughs> I think we truly have a clash of philosophies here, for sure. I'm actually a believer in luck. I, I kind of want to embrace luck, and I think we all have it, uh, especially thinking about uh, general topics like we're all born here in a very wealthy part of the world. We have all the opportunities This is what we consider luck. And I try to be humble here as well. Of course, I was always hardworking in my life. And uh, it's important that everybody is pushing and nothing will just fall into your lap and uh, for, for with you sitting there waiting. But I think generally being humble, there is always a moment of luck. And there's always this little, this little unpredictable thing which you not always can influence. For example, I was born in the eastern part of Germany behind walls. And then the wall came down in 1989 and that was luck, wasn't it? Otherwise, I would not have had the opportunity to become an entrepreneur and go my path. And I think we have also in, you know, market trends or geopolitical things or unexpected things that are happening. I think being there at the right time in the right moment is luck. And I, uh, yeah, I, I think that is something you have to take into account as well. I very much share that view, actually, specifically what you said, you know, we are we are all somewhat lucky, right? When you look at, you know, where, where you come from and, and where you started off your life. That doesn't mean you can't make your luck, right? But still. Could I ask you a question before we go into um, into the deep dive here? I see a picture behind you um, and you have a very nice background. <laughs> what, what, what is that picture about? That's Bob Dylan. <laughs> why do you have a bob him. dylan what is is that a drawing that, no that, yeah that's a that's a piece of art which i got in um brazil in rio and you can see it's all it's made from zeros and ones ah, nice. it's How it's amazing i love it and i love him and i think he's an amazing artist so that's why he's there inspiring <laughs> me i have a connected question because we are 100 going to be doing something with this episode, which we always do, and that is cre have Dali create a, uh, a painting that, that's inspired by the whole episode. And obviously, it's now going to be made out of zeros and ones, ah, but it's not yes. going to be about <laughs> villain because at the same time, I always 
tend to also use famous painters for this. And I, I, I like using Van Gogh. And I also see a book on Van Gogh and I see different things behind you that are connected to painting. So I'd love to ask you, what is this passion with painting? <laughs> well, I studied art history. I studied art history and literature, and uh, that is a passion of mine. And uh, as I said, I was not really uh, probably, uh, I, I did not plan to be the business person I became. <laughs> uh, so that is still a passion of mine. And I love, yeah, it's all the books from museums I went to or like stuff I had to do in my university times and so on. Or just artists I uh, I admire and uh, yeah ex uh, inspires me. I actually uh, studied while uh, starting my first company, so for me that was always amazing. I went early in the morning or late at uh, evening, so I had to squeeze in my business life and my uh, my studies. And for me that was one of the greatest moment when I came from a super stressy day, business, you know, sales and and whatever stuff I had to deal with. And then I went there to the university. Then they switched the lights off. Then just beautiful art and and that kind of stuff. And that is, that is something I miss, actually. So maybe I should go back to university or something like that. Can I ask you to reflect a bit on this whole intersection point of business and creativity and arts? Because I think it's something that not to, I think we all embrace it as VCs and, and, and founders. I think many of us do embrace it, but I don't think many of us actually have dedicated as much of our life as you have to then study arts. So I'd love to, to, to get an informed view on, on this intersection. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, you know, there's, there's a couple of funny stories. So when I, um, when I told um, uh, a business partner of mine back in the days that I wanted to study art, he asked me if I wanted to become a taxi driver. So he did not <laughs> take me seriously. I did not, uh, you know, take this as a career <laughs> path or whatever, as, as, a, as study seriously. But I still, I did it because I felt, um, and also when people ask me afterwards, what, did you do something or was it worth it? Well, can, can you apply your studies somehow? And I think, yes, you can, because isn't, isn't tech and building products all about making something beautiful, making something usable, getting the attention of people? For example, also the writing part when I, I um, in Germany, you have to do two things. That's why art history and uh, literature. Um, I wrote so many things. And then I think you just get good at formulating your views, for, uh, like writing down what you want to say, phrasing your thoughts somehow. So I think there is, there is actually a big, big intersection. I love people who come with different backgrounds. When I assess founders, maybe that is also I'm biased because of my background, but I love talking to founders who have, who come from different fields, like biologists, engineers. And I do not mean necessarily only software engineers, but people who do real machines and stuff like that. And, and just bringing something else to the table than just having a, a business background, because business background, we all have to acquire when we're in the business environment anyway. So I think that it's, it's cool. It's great to have this intersection of, of different uh, subjects. I don't know if David had it beautiful segue plan for going into our deep dive section no i was i was just gonna say that's why i have like my guitar just sitting next to me right it's to, to keep the, <laughs> the juices flowing go on and <laughs> no so what i was about to say was today we're going to talk about sales as the as the deep dive uh, because sales is you're very passionate around sales and you think sales is incredibly important but if there's any mindset that i would typically 
stays probably the furthest away from being creative. Um, it's the <laughs> it's a typical salesperson's mindset. <laughs> so, it's not true. Look, this is not true. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd love to ask you to just reflect on that Let's first, and then that. we go into to talk about okay. sales. <laughs> to build this beautiful bridge, right, from one topic yeah, to another. Exactly. Awesome. You know, this is exactly what I mean when I usually refer to in the in Europe, is sales is not perceived as the career as it is in the U.S. In the U.S., the salespeople in big, uh, let's say, software as a service companies are the heroes. These are the people bringing in the money, and and they're really treated like that. And and my experience when I when I started doing sales here in Europe was basically that people are like, oh, you are in sales, mm-hmm. and then it, like rolling their eyes, you know. So it's not. It's not that the coolest um, department of a of a firm, but I think it should be. Um, and great sales and having having a like an artful sales department is inspiring people. And this is what people usually misunderstand because they miss or they they confuse sales and the art of selling with call center. And that's not the same, you know. If you call somewhere and some people read a person reads out a script versus a person selling a seven-digit enterprise contract because that requires a lot of skills. And I think um, we will talk about it in a minute when we go a bit deeper, but there are also uh, investors in, uh, in Europe. They should have more of it, more attention um, on the sales topic. Yeah, and I think let's go directly into going deeper. So tell us exactly what your mindset and your thinking around why sales is crucial to, to anyone's success as a founder and, and how you think about that as a VC. I can share one story with you. When I, uh, back in the days, uh, was super young, worked for VeriSign, and then they had a new uh, European um, CEO or a European leader. He came in, interviewed everybody in the different offices and asked everybody, you write down on a piece of paper uh, what you do here. What is, what is part of your job in this company? And then, of course, like people wrote all fancy stuff, you know, organizing this and that and marketing and whatever. And afterwards, uh, he said, whoever has not uh, sales on that piece of paper can go. You can leave the company because we don't need you here. We need people who are revenue oriented. We need people who uh, push super hard to bring the company forward and make some money for the firm. You can have a beautiful product, the most amazing product out there. But I bet that uh, the better sales team with maybe a weaker product, not a bad product, but a weaker product would beat the, the beautiful product. And I think that is something where people have, and especially investors have to understand, it is not only about this one beautiful product, and there's a lot of discussion about product-led growth and stuff like that, but it is about bringing the two together. And my experience in investing is um, if one piece is missing, this will not be a big hit. And it's very hard to just hire a great salesperson if this is not part of the DNA of the founding team. Doreen, did I sense a tiny bit of banter there when you talked about product-led growth? <laughs> tiny, only tiny. <laughs> do you want to do you want to expand on 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 what you mean? Because I think it's an interesting conversation. It obviously depends also what what products you are selling, right? And when I talk about sales, I usually talk about enterprise sales. So I talk about big contracts, big ACVs. I know that founders sometimes want to believe that product-led growth is the holy grail in this and that they can set it up. And then somehow, it's, I, I think it basically comes down to the hope and to the belief that if that works, if I can set up a product-led sales, I do not need to deal with real sales and I do not need to hire a sales <laughs> team and I do not need to, need to focus on that. But the reality is it usually doesn't work. 
a product is not selling itself, but you need in a B2B environment, you need people reaching out. You need a great marketing team too to position your brand and stuff like that. But you do need salespeople and a sales team to really navigate through this buying process and making sure that uh, you inspire the, the other side that they need your product. But the, the thing with, with product growth specifically is like we know We all know the examples like Slack, Zoom, Dropbox, HubSpot, Canva, like you know, and, and that just gets gets poured from from a content perspective, and that, I think that's also why it's it's mentioned so many times. Do you have any um, framework yourself to think around this? Of you know, because what you basically said is it, you can't just copy paste and assume the, the same approach works for everything. Of course, right? Yeah. That's obvious. Yeah. How, yeah. how do you go through it on when you're looking at a specific company? Yeah. Well, I think it probably comes down to if the product has no uh, edge of network effect as the, the exactly the examples you just mentioned, right? Where you need to onboard your friends and other users to make this whole thing work. Let's say it's a typical uh, software as a service CRM or also the buy, where the buyer sits is super important as well. Um, then every everything else is sales and you need sales departments for this. And um, you need to test the waters as well. And you need to test if you have already product market fit by having a sales team very early in the beginning to having them have the conversation with the buyers and see if you are building the right thing. Because otherwise you will build in your little chamber and uh, come out and launch. And then you will realize that you probably built the wrong thing. You said in the beginning, Doreen, that if you're a founding team that don't have sales already in your uh Core team, then it's going to be very, very hard to kind of get it built in afterwards. And I know, and I don't want to try and force you into saying something not nuanced, um, but how hard of a rule is this when you meet a founding team and you see that they're not strong in sales? How do you test for that? When do you say, okay, I'm willing to break my rule <laughs> and, and actually go with it, even though there's not a strong sales um, and I know EQT are doing more and more in, in, in deep tech and, and in, in the hardware segment. And, and those teams are very often very weak on sales. So I think the, the important nuance is uh, you have to have a sales DNA or like some kind of like the, the founders do have sales DNA. I have very bad experience with founders and, and they are out there, right? If you have, let's say, very, as you said, a very techy, tech heavy uh, founding team. And then they were sometimes even scared to even go in the sales floor, in the sales department and say hi and ask how many deals did you close today? And that is just very, very hard for them to acquire the skill if you want to teach them or train them because this is, is not coming naturally to them. And it's basically like this avoiding strategy. And um, my rule is basically around how much do they talk? For example, if you have a great founder who's, let's say, an engineer, but still talks a lot to customers because he wants to understand what am I building? Am I building for the right person? Is it, is it the right solution to the problem? That is for me enough sales DNA. But if we have really people who are only building for the sake of building and not for the sake of solving a problem, it's probably not my type of investment. It's funny that you say sales DNA and it's awfully close to like customer focus, right? That that yeah. that's kind of what what you're, what you're really hinting to, because that's the core underlying concept of of design thinking as well, right? Yeah. And so any any proper startup is built like that. Very interesting. I I, I want to ask you a more kind of um, conceptual question, which is I think it's quite obvious to anyone listening in that that you're passionate and have strong views around sales. 
do you think it's something that's particularly relevant in today's market? And if so, uh, why? Yeah, very much. It's a very good question. And I think that uh, nails it pretty much, especially after valuations um, ha have been corrected and investors are also looking at different numbers. You can clearly see that. I mean, the whole public public market is asking for profits now. You know, stuff, <laughs> just different questions. The market turned around from uh, almost one month to another. Um, and uh, yeah, totally for, for software as a service companies, even more than ever, it's important to have a monetization strategy and show that you can sell this, uh, what you're building, and um, that you can make uh, money on it. And uh, and that's I think especially in today's there's yeah maybe probably is a good uh, good reminder to all the startups and and maybe uh, even more of a reason to talk more about sales these days because it has not been a very top of mind topic in the in the past couple of years I would say it was more about you know growth and acquiring customers fast and stuff like that show this traction instead of okay how much revenue are we actually signing contracts is this all free users or do they do they have a contract and, and pay something. Are you personally feeling more pulled in by the portfolio companies, uh, given your skill set and, and mindset, like sales-oriented skill set and, and mindset these days, compared to like a year ago? Not necessarily, I would say. Um, I, at Equity Ventures now, I focus on software. That's why I think that comes with the with the topic. But I also did food tech investments and stuff like that. And obviously, there is a whole different story. And uh, there is, in fact, still. How fast can you grow? How can you ex when you are more in the consumer space in the mass market segment? So I think with my with my marketplace background, there's still a lot of companies I th I think are super interesting in different areas. But when it comes to software, yes, uh, I would say like I, I focus on these companies right now. You spoke about the juxtaposition of Germany versus the U.S. and Germany is probably good benchmark for Europe uh, because Germany is so big and you've got East and West and there's different cultures in both. And I think they're pretty resembling uh, what we, what the makeup that we have in Europe to some extent. So I'd love to ask you, in, in the US, they're very numbers driven. They, their KPIs are very deadly. I remember my old CFO always said, when I worked for an American company, Andreas, every Monday, whether it was the first day of the month or the fourth day of the month, you would have your reports ready, uh, and they did not care. Um, and and then you come to Denmark, and it's like well, as long as you get it done by, if you get last month done before the end of next month, then it's all good. Uh, we'll, we'll make. Um, so I'd love to ask you to to dive a bit more into those, you know, those two philosophies and where you think that that we or how you think that we as European VCs can help our founders improve? Absolutely. Um, I, I, heard, I heard even one founder saying um, a while ago um, that uh, a, few, a few board members on, on his board were less active than he was as an angel. And I think that tells you a lot, right? Because that, that he said that actually made me understand that it's not what, what entrepreneurs want necessarily. If you are ambitious... You want someone who's challenging you, who's showing you, okay, th there is the goal, right? Not here, but there, level up all the time. Because if you are a CEO, who else is giving you this? Because your employees are not giving you this, usually because you are the founder and CEO, right? So you need other people, and that ideally is your board. And I totally agree with you. In the U.S., I mean, the way how I was, I was trained, there was really 
at every point of time, I could always say, where do I stand as of my, my uh, monthly goal? Where would I come in if today was end of, end of month? Where would I come in? What's my run rate? What's my pipeline like until end of this month, end of quarter, end of year? You know, like being extremely um, specific and numbers driven. And only like that, I think you can manage a, a super fast growing company to really be on top of your numbers. Can I ask you though, because it's one thing what we as VCs and private equity people, <laughs> investors, would like to see and think makes sense. And then we have the founders squeezed in the middle between uh, a workforce that's very German <laughs> or Danish, um, and then a group of VCs that have picked up some tr tricks from the US. How do, you, how do you see bridging that gulf? Because I think it can be, and, and build the culture inside so that and, and help the founder and of course this is always when we talk on this podcast from the vc perspective so how do you as a vc help the founder get to the right culture in terms of sales i mean you can always consult the founder if the founder is open to it and wants it right i came to the conclusion especially with my angel investments if the founder is not open it's hopeless then uh, you have it's, it's very very hard to make the founder do something he, he is not or he or she is not ready to do um, but of course you can you can support you can share experience you can hook them up with uh, US uh, sales leaders and stuff like that so I think that's that's super cool about EQT because EQT ventures is part of uh, EQT partners so we run not only the ventures fund but also private equity funds and infrastructure funds and so on so we have a massive network of experts we can uh, access all over the world and usually if we uh, do an investment especially in software I think it's it's perfect because we can open, Whatever doors you want to have, you want to open, you know, of all the top DAX company CEOs, we can do intros or in the US and so on. So I think that is important to put them in this ecosystem if they are still super young and, uh, and want to learn and to get them in touch with, uh, with, uh, with the other leaders who have done it yet, like who have, who have built, um, that track record. For example, at Palua, they just hired Joachim Schreiner, which is the ex general manager for Salesforce in Germany. And he scaled Salesforce in Germany to a billion in revenue. So this guy is a sales guru. I mean, I talked to him. I said, tell me more, tell me more, you know, because it's so insightful what he has to say. Um, and I think like whenever we do a new investment, then I would obviously try to uh, make Joachim spend some time with them as well. And to like those kind of things. I think that is very, very valuable if you can um, really connect them with the right people who can share experiences. How do you think about that? Because I think you, had, you said something incredibly interesting around the power of EQT being both EQT ventures and also the, power, the private equity part. I'd love to understand how do you leverage that uh, on this on this side, and I can only imagine that you feel closer to where the public market is and the later stage market is uh, than than most VC firms would, because you have that very close interaction with your with your private equity team. So you probably saw many of the uh, <laughs> write offs coming before before others. So I'd love to ask you, Darian, try and help me understand how you leverage that inside EQT. Yeah, it's uh, it's super powerful. That was also for me, uh, I think, a big learning when I joined because I probably didn't understand how powerful EQT was before before I really uh, joined EQT Ventures and became a partner and was like find myself out of out of a sudden in this ecosystem. Um, amazing, amazingly smart people and knowledgeable people in all different sectors. So we have um, an internal software which is called uh, Motherbrain, which is our internal AI. 
we started that already, I think, uh, like seven, eight years ago. And, and that uh, is, uh, helps us basically to also see who in the, in an organization, we are uh, well above a thousand employees at EQT overall with that, within all the funds. So it's a massive organization already. And, um, and th uh, that system shows us who knows stuff about what and who is connected to whom. And I think that is uh, extremely powerful. There's a very, very, um, high amount of intros going around and calls and uh, internal stuff happening at EQT to really make sure that we are levering, leveraging this knowledge, which is so powerful to, again, not only our companies, but it's also, let's say, a P, uh, one PE fund invests in a big company. They want to learn what is what is what can be expected from the venture space. Can they be disrupted? Can they learn from the new technologies? So I think it really goes both sides. And now it's time for our shout out segment. Doreen, I'd like to ask you to give a shout out to a co-investor, an angel or an LP for being awesome. And of course, do share that story with us. My shout out is, uh, is I would say even more than a shout out. It, uh, I would call it a standing ovation. Um, and that's for uh, Pavel from Point9 and the whole Point9 team, also Kolya and Christoph. I worked with them. I was I was uh, happy and lucky to have them as an investor at Delivery Hero, but also later at Lemoncat at my uh, last company. And I think they're just incredibly thoughtful, helpful, always humble and never angry, or at least never, they were never angry with me or never, you know, I, I, I experienced them always as uh, extremely thoughtful investors and helpful. They were really standing behind me uh, in, in good times, but also in bad times. And I did not feel like they were putting me on the side uh, or whatever, but really uh, supporting me and, and consulting with me. Ever since I became an investor, I was reflecting so much on my behavior when I was a founder. And I had a, a couple of moments where I was like, oh, no, I, I, I wish I would have taken that advice more seriously or I wish I would have listened more. Yeah, so uh, that that's why my shout out goes to to Pavel from Point Nine. So now we just got into our three biggest learning segment, but you just said something that I have to ask you to expand on a bit, and which is thinking about your own founder experience and the behavior of investors that you look up to, and seeing fuck, I wish I could had modeled or I could model that behavior more. <laughs> um, could you tell me what, what exactly you're trying to model as an investor for yourself? Do you have an ideal that you're pursuing? I have an ideal and I try to, I try to um, be that partner to the founders I'm supporting. It's not always easy because it's also for me now um, work in progress, right? And you keep learning whatever I learned on the other side as an entrepreneur. Now I learn as, a, as an investor. I think it pretty much goes in the direction of uh, what I just uh, said I valued uh, in working with Pavel in the Point9 team. It is really, you know, being thoughtful, being there, having a close relationship, not just like we are, for example, at EQT, we are not investors who are writing a check and then call us when you IPO or something. We are very, very engaged. And um, all of our partners are ex-founders and operators. So this is really the one thing we believe in, that ex People who have been there, people who have gone through the good and bad, uh, that they can be the best partners. And um, so I try to share a lot with my with my founders, um, try to 
prevent them from making the same mistakes. If I, you know, can foresee already, oh, oh th this is not going well because I did that several times. Um, I think they benefit from that and also from, you know, scaling big to a big organization, but also, you know, being in tough times and cutting on costs and on, on staff and, and so on. So like all those learnings, I think is extremely valuable to share that. But at the, at the same time, my belief is I'm embarking on their journey. So they are the captains. It's their journey. It's their boat. And I, I'm happy to be part of that journey, but it's not my journey. So I try not to force my view on them or, or something like that. So I try to be, um, yeah, a partner in crime, hopefully a friend and a supporter. But, uh, yeah, like they, they call the shots. So now let's head in, head into the three biggest learnings. Tell us what have you learned in the last three years that you want to share with us? So, yeah, well, um, as I said, like I, uh, in the beginning when I joined EQT Ventures, I said several times, um, I wish I would have done an internship in VC before I started um, my entrepreneurial career because there's actually quite a lot which is interesting to know as a founder. And I think I wonder why nobody is really sharing that. But but overall, generally, my belief and my learning is um, that this this founder empathy is underrated uh, uh, throughout the VC ecosystem. And I think that is why I joined Equity Ventures, because I feel this is our belief. So we think we can leverage the biggest value by supporting the founders and knowing what it's like to go through such a such a journey. It's, could, I, was, could I just interrupt you, Doreen? Sure. I really want to ask this. So you, you started off by saying you've benefited a lot from a VC internship before starting your company. Could you be specific there? Totally. What are like the core learnings? And the reason I say that is because, you know, um, as we as our pod grows, we sometimes get asked to go and participate at events and stuff. And I always say, like, don't don't ask me to like talk to founders and give them advice. Like, I'm I'm a shitty founder myself. Our company <laughs> isn't even VC backed, so what the fuck am I gonna tell them, right? And I always say, like, the one thing that I'm more than happy to share is like. What I, since we see so many funds and we do fund investments as well, more than happy to share like that experience if it proves valuable. So I'm asking out of curiosity, but also as a learning for myself, like what kind of insights do you think would have been useful for you as an operator and a founder? Yeah, I think the biggest one is, is actually uh, my second learning I wanted to share with you guys anyway, is um, do not take things personally as a founder. And I know that a lot of founders let's say particularly fundraising is it's always very tough. You know, it might, might still be easy in the seed round and maybe series A, but then it starts being tougher and tougher. And you, have, you basically have to fundraise all the time. At Delivery, we never stopped fundraising. It was from one, from one closing to another to another. And obviously, you get no's. It's like in sales. You get no's quite a lot. And then founders have a tendency to take it personally. And think this is against me and against my baby and they do not like what I'm doing here or they do not value it. But one thing I learned with being within a VC, it's sorry to say that, uh, sorry to all the VCs, but it's highly random. I figured it is highly decisions from VCs. They don't admit it, but it's, it's random because and random, not when we talk about the decision itself, right? When you go through a case and you do, you do your due diligence, but it's, for example, you have several partners in a VC firm and a partner is one has more attendance or like likes more software. Another one likes more consumer. And then uh, you are being approached by a founder and you approach this one partner. That doesn't mean that you spoke to 30 people in the in the VC. But this one partner that day said, took a look and said, not for us. And then a founder thinks it's it's personal or there is a massive reason behind it. But it's sometimes just 
you didn't speak to me. Like as of we didn't click the the deck. I didn't get the problem. Or I personally, in my in my history of work experience, I do not think this is a problem. Another partner in the same firm could look at that same deck and say, I love it. I love it. We have to do the deal. And so that's why I think it is never take anything personally. Really see it as a very objective, abstract thing. Go pitch, always deliver the best you can. But if they say no, there can be a thousand reasons. Or VC did, let's say, already smaller VC, they did already three, four software as a service investments in a row. And then another software as a service investment comes along. It, there is a chance that they say due to portfolio construction, maybe now we should focus on consumer uh, or industrial tech or whatever other focuses, focus areas we have. So this is what I mean with sometimes it's random and the founder would not really understand the whole rationale behind this decision, but it's 90% or 95% never personal. So as a wrap-up here, we have empathy is a highly valued trade in investors, especially those with founder experience, emotional detachment, and maintaining objectivity are super vital for any founder navigating VC. And finally, there should be some kind of internship, VC internship for founders <laughs> yeah, and operators. Yes. If it doesn't well, exist, someone should start it. You can probably exactly. make some money off of it. Yeah, and Doreen will be a mentor, right? That, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, I, I, we all we all VCs have to write more transparent blog posts <laughs> Maybe, on decision yeah. making and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can help. So if anyone wants to write, just call us and we'll, we'll feature good. it happily. <laughs> <laughs> but now we have to go to the quick fire. The quick fire section is when I will ask you three quick answer questions, Doreen. <laughs> and now the quick what advice would you give your 10 year younger self yeah that's always a tough uh, question i think i guess um what maybe on a on a more personal note is um no shit take your health seriously it's very important the older you get you will realize why so um you know meditate or work out or whatever it is um i always worked long hours and and such but i think this uh, establishing this routine at some point always working out always doing something for your health uh, and meditating helped me a lot and i wish uh, i would have started that even earlier and i could only recommend every Let's say first time a young founder or young person in life, uh, focus on that as well. Don't forget about that. What are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe who are now fundraising? Well, probably like um, my sales tips earlier, <laughs> you have to have a sales DNA. Otherwise, it's not really working out. And then, uh, like always, you need to you know, reach out, um, find a great entrance into the network of LPs out there. I think it's it's super important to find your own voice and not to copy. Uh, that was always one of my personal rules, not to follow competitor, but to perceive yourself as a leader, not a follower. I think it never uh, it's, ne it's never good advice to say, like, do what your competitors are doing. Yeah, and just be uh, persistent and, and keep doing the job because uh, also as a VC, I learned that as well. That was, uh, I mean, a little bit unexpected. I thought I would be done with fundraising, but no, I'm not. I <laughs> like right when I joined, we went uh, fundraising for the third fund. So it's it's an ongoing thing. You will never stop fundraising, neither as a VC or a founder. What's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned in venture? I think with my angel investments, I learned that a culture of a company is extremely important. I'm a big fan. I was always, I think, the one 
person in the founding team who was driving that a lot. So I'm a believer in having a great uh, culture in place and making the people stay and making, uh, making them feel happy about what they are doing. And I think, uh, well, there is also this saying, right? Uh, culture eats a strategy for breakfast. So best you have both, but uh, a great culture is important. And, and maybe on that note, I'm, I'm not a big, big fan on remote first companies because I feel that they are missing out on especially this, on this, on this culture building part, on coming together. And um, I know nobody really solved it in the post-COVID times yet. It's a tough one, but... Um, Spending time together, doing whiteboard, hanging out, getting to know each other more. This culture part is uh, is super important and maybe a bit counterintuitive in the post-COVID times. It's on record. Doreen said she's not a fan of remote first companies. That means she's not a fan of UVC. I'm just, <laughs> it is It is now said, it is now written. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're rem we're remote first gang, so that I think that's ah, okay, the okay, okay. That's yeah. The and how do how do you make sure how do you make sure uh, to to maintain a great culture? I mean, how many people are you, and how? Uh, what's uh, I was your about to say we're founder led, right? We're they okay. <laughs> only basically decided we're not VC backed. We don't need scale. Like it's a perfect lifestyle business. <laughs> <laughs> okay, to be very it. to be very fair, I think we have we've learned some things which have made us. Uh, uh, scale down the size of the team um, because we think that we get more joy out of out of being just David and Andreas and 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 a freelance uh, audio editor. But we have had three employees at a point, and and, and I think definitely part of what you're saying is exactly why uh, we've we've decided not to 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 continue like that. Uh, I think it, it's very very hard for juniors to excel in that environment. And running an ad-based ad business, things are not overflowing with money. So for that reason, it's very much going to be junior hires in the beginning. And, and, and doing that in a remote setting is, is very, very hard. And it's very, very hard to allow them to actually become what they can become. So, so I think it's frustrating for everyone to try and build remote if you don't have very senior people on board from the beginning. Uh, that, that's my take on it personally. Yeah, agree, agree. So on that note, everyone, <laughs> hope you really enjoyed the episode. We always enjoy having you with us. Do drop us a review on the on the on the Spotify on the Spotify player or wherever you're getting your podcast. Follow us at EUVC and make sure to subscribe. Thank you so much. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. An alliance. This this is a union of values. Of values. values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting, acting, acting.